everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference. And that's really to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Dean Michelle Williams to SALT Talks. Uh, Dean Williams is the Dean of Faculty for the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, as well as the Angelopoulos Professor in Public Health and International Development, which is a joint faculty appointment at the Harvard Chan School, as well as the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Dean Williams is an internationally renowned epidemiologist and public health scientist, an award-winning educator, and a widely recognized academic leader. Uh, prior to becoming Dean, she was the professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Harvard Chan and program leader of the Population Health and Health Disparities Research Programs at Harvard's Clinical and Translational Sciences Center. Dean Williams previously had a distinguished career at the University of Washington School of Public Health, her scientific work places special emphasis in the areas of reproductive, perinatal, pediatric, and molecular epidemiology. She was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2016. A reminder, if you have any questions for Dean Williams during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. He's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. John, thank you. Uh, Dean Williams, it's just a great honor to have you on. Uh, uh, the rumor has it, I've learned from mutual friends that you're from Queens. Is that true? That's right. I'm from Queens Village. All right. So are we a Met or a Yankee fan? I am a Met fan. Okay. Uh, so this is going to be an I easy interview for Met you. Fan. Then, okay? <laughs> I had two separate sets of questions. If you said Yankee fan, we were going with the really <laughs> rough stuff, okay? So now I'm putting the rough stuff down. We're going with the layup questions, okay? All right. Because you've suffered enough, Dean. You've <laughs> suffered enough. Let's face it, okay? We've lived in a house of pain for four decades. So, uh, all right, well, terrific. Thank you for being on. How did you start this amazing career? Let's go from Queens Village to where you are today. And, and what were you thinking about as a kid? And how did you end up where you are? Yeah. You know, I, thanks for asking that question. You know, I'm an immigrant kid. My parents emigrated to uh, the United States when I was seven. And my father did that because he understood that education was really the social driver that lifts all boats. And while he wasn't afforded that that opportunity, he wanted his kids, three girls to have that. And so we ended up in Queens, Queens, New York, Canberra Heights, Queens Village. And, you know, public schools. Um, I got noticed by really good teachers who recognized my talent and always worked to get me in the right classrooms at the right time. And, um, you know, this is a great country where an immigrant kid um, can go to public schools in New York and end up at Ivy League education. I know, you know, Anthony, that's not so dissimilar from your own background. Um, oh, yeah. My my mother thought it was hard for law school, Dean. OK, so when I was packing the car for Labor Day weekend, 1986, my mother had the map out. She was heading for Hartford. I said, Ma, no, it's it's by Tufts. It's up in Boston. Why would they call it Hartford Law School if it's not in Hartford? <laughs> so, I mean, that has been a standing joke in our family for the last 34 years. 
So no, I get it, but it's a real tribute to you, tribute to your family. And obviously uh, we both have a great fondness for the university. Um, the United States is at a pretty difficult time. We're, we're in the middle of, I, let, I would probably say it's the worst pandemic since uh, some people are comparing it to the Hong Kong flu in the, in the mid to late sixties, but I think it's more like Spanish flu fan. It feels that way to me, but you're the epidemiologist. Uh, tell me what we're doing wrong. What would you suggest that we would do to have better mortality rates, get them more consistent with places like South Korea, curb the, the spread of the virus like Germany? What, what would you like to see done if you could wave the magic wand and you could be the epidemiological czar of yeah. the COVID-19 crisis? You know, that's a great question. And I'm going to try to approach it from a core fundamental place. Because Anthony, this, this problem uh, stems, our lack of capacity to respond uh, stems from some acute issues around lack of leadership and lack of um, um, trust and appropriate appreciation for science and scientists' voices. But there are also some long-term problems that led us to this place. And that is a, a chronic underinvestment in public health. Public health for far too long has been sort of unseen and undervalued and underinvested. And so we, we for too long have not had the appropriate investment in the public health workforce, the public health infrastructure, and the public health tools. I mean, the richest country in the world, we spend more money on health than anyone else but we consistently rank in the bottom for all, all of the population health metrics. We've got to do better. Public health, I think what we've learned from COVID is public health is, is a primary factor in our civic life. It's a primary player that undergirds our economic security and our, our national security. So one of the things that went wrong, we can correct right now. And I think we have an opportunity to do that because there is an acute awareness now of the primacy of public health in, in society, in our business and in our life and in our national security. So rather than dwell on what we have gotten wrong, we need to seize this moment and turn it into a movement where the mission is to invest in public health, in the tools, the people and the partnerships and one of the things that I've seen happen and we hope will continue to happen is de-siloing the systems that we have. Academics should be working closely with government, should be working with philanthropists, should be working with the private sector because we're all in this together. Um, you know, the private sector um, are now really fully realizing that they're in the public health business. And so it's one of the reasons we've created a program that brings CEO, you know, leaders of the biggest and smallest companies, a full range of them into the public health space where we can start to work together on infusing decisions around sustainable workforce, sustainable environment, um, you know, building back trust with consumers by educating them with the four, the core fundamental principles of disease prevention, health promotion, protection and preservation of health. And that happens through using data wisely to prepare for disasters, natural and, and man-made, and to have a response system that's robust. 
Well, I mean, all, all, all that's right. And I want to get into the course, the C-suite course in a second, but I, 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 I want to ask you two follow-up questions. And so the first one is related to the safety net in the United States, because I think we both grew up in certain areas of the country and have empathy for people that may not have done as well, frankly, as you and I have done from those areas of the country. And now with a great pandemic upon us, we realize our health system may be as weak as the weakest link in our health system. So I could be sitting here with a Cadillac uh, health insurance policy, but now I've got people in my neighborhood that may not be doing as well, and they could get sick, which could lead to sickness in my family. So it's sort of this pervasive thing. And, I, and I'm wondering if this is going to create the awareness necessary to have something that is more sturdy at the bottom yeah. than even Obamacare, frankly. And again, I'm not calling for uh, single health care paying. I believe that we should have a hybrid, more or less, as uh, the vice president has expressed. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that this is a breakthrough moment for us politically on the health care and public health care side, or you think it's going to be status quo going forward? It can't be status quo going forward. Um, I'm going to be a strategic optimist, and I'm going to say that more of us across all sectors are learning that there is a huge cost that we are all paying, whether we are aware of it or not, by not having a good, solid safety net, right? City just released a report that put dollars to that problem of indifference around a social safety net. And you know, that is driven in large part by our 401 years of inequality based on race and racism, right? City basically reported just a week or two ago that, you know, our GDP has been hammered by at the order of $16 billion, you know, by our inattentiveness to inequality, which is a very big factor around the issues of inequity and really poor health disparity outcomes that we see in the neighborhoods that we're familiar with and that you started to allude to. So I think that there is an increasing awareness that there is a cost to our indifference about the most vulnerable in our society. And it's not sustainable, nor is it wise economically for us to have a blind eye to this problem. And I, you know, I'm seeing, I am seeing many different people across sectors step up and take on responsibility in building capacity in communities that have been historically deprived, you know, investing in schools, creating opportunities for meaningful jobs and economic employment for people who have been left behind. Um, and I think this, I hope we can be really strategic in capturing the best lessons learned from these kinds of investments and bring them forward so that they can be brought to scale in, in communities that really need help. I think it's very well said. You, you, you're, you're also combating, again, this is my opinion, I'm editorializing a little, and if you disagree, please chime in. But I think we're also battling some level of information crisis. It's a misinformation crisis almost. We're, we've got conflicting ideas about wearing masks versus not wearing masks. We have doctors inside the White House that say it's okay not to wear one. We have someone like Anthony Fauci insisting that it's uh, important to, or Dr. Burks insisting that it's important to. How do you, at your level, combat that misinformation? 
what would you recommend to the average citizen to get more educated? What, 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 what would you recommend here? Because we, we seem to have politicized now science, which uh, has me very, very concerned. Yeah. No, Anthony, that's a very important question. And I think the first thing we have to recognize is this is not new. Um, that misinformation has been uh, a, a challenge and a threat to public health for a very long time. But I think because we have had now several institutions be challenged because of the politicization of global health and public health, it does begin to feel like an existential threat. And indeed it is. You know, I think the first thing that people have to recognize is if it sounds um, too good to be true, get your information from trusted sources. You know, academic, academics are still, you know, regarded as a trusted source of information. And what one of the things that we have to do in the academy is to make sure that we are deeply engaged in the national conversations and global conversations as we can be. And we should bring that information down to the level where people are at. I think it's going to take a whole society and all of our sectors to be very mindful, strategic and proactive about seeking out those sources of misinformation and, and breaking the chain of, of dissemination of this information. And we're gonna have to do some science, Anthony, um, because um, like all useful tools, sometimes they're gonna be used for good and sometimes they're gonna be used for bad. And we're gonna have to develop um, appropriate policies that protect uh, rights and freedom of speech, but also protect the public from harmful, misleading information. How, how can businesses uh, help in this area? How can they help prepare us better? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I don't have an immediate answer, but I will tell you what's really important because um, I've seen businesses and leaders stand up and take a pro-public health um, position. You know, just speaking about how masks, masks, very basic, very important instrument, public health instrument for breaking the train of COVID-19 transmission. And for me as an academic, my entire professional life, to see C-suite executives for some of the biggest companies across different sectors, stand up and make a clear statement to promote the use of masks was powerful. And I think every student of public health, every person in our nation and in the world should begin to recognize that it is an unfortunate past perception that business bad, not business good. That false dichotomy has in a way robbed us of the opportunity to work together collectively to have leaders in business be part of the narrative of a public health forward way of thinking and doing. So I think, you know, if we break down silos and continue to engage in a conversation in the narrative about what is good for public health is also good in the, in the overall conceptualization of society will be a healthier place because we are in this together. And if COVID did anything for us, it made that so clear to all of us that one should not get caught up in the false dichotomy of trading business or wealth for health. They are intimately intertwined and they have to work together in order to bring forward an equitable society. 
CEOs play a big role in that. Oh, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. I, this is more of a, a meta question, actually. This is something I've been thinking about. Uh, David Quammen uh, uh, in 2012 wrote a book called Spillover. Uh, and in the book, he basically is saying that we are now spilling over into the animal kingdom because of the size and scale of the human population, a result of which, and you have to forgive me because I never pronounce things right, but I think it's called zoonotic or zootropic zoonotic transfers of diseases. So yeah. you can get a virus in a bat, a horseshoe bat, or you get a virus in uh, Pangolin or something like that. And all of a sudden it, it, it jumps into the human species and we're not biologically prepared for it from an immunological perspective. Uh, is that going to happen more and more? His contention, and he wrote the book in 2012, was that it would happen more and more. And he more or less predicted what unfolded in 2020. Is this something we need to be worried about? Um, you know, I, I, that's a very important question, and I'll say that this is something uh, from the perspective of understanding how climate change impacts human health. This is a very big question, and it is one of the primary pressing challenges to human health going forward. And it's why at the Harvard Chan School, we're focused very much on understanding how climate change, the many different ways climate change impacts human health. And this encrosion of zoonotic infections on into the lives and livelihood of populations is in part a downstream consequence of changes in our physical environment. Changes brought about largely by how we live, work, and interact with our environment. How those changes contribute to alterations in our ecosystem that puts um, animals and pathogens more in line of our path. And this is where emerging and re-emerging infections as a result of climate change is one of our big challenges. You know, Lyme disease is an example as our environment changes and as vectors that carry these um, pathogens um, commingle in spaces where we are, you know, we will end up with a higher likelihood of exposure and risks. And so, you know, one of the things about public health, Anthony, is it's about connecting dots. And it's about understanding how, how we live and work and operate in our environment changes the environment in ways that either mitigate or amplify environmental risks to human health. And that's what he's yeah. getting at in the book. Yeah, and it's a very interesting point. And I, you know, Fareed Zakaria, who we're going to be interviewing on Monday, he just wrote a book about the 10 lessons yeah. in the post-pandemic world. And in the book, he writes uh, something that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is the butterfly effect. Something is happening on one side of the world. It seems like a minor thing, but it's having a deep impact on the rest of the world. Uh, and one thing that is happening as our societies are getting more Western in terms of their consumption-based style of capitalism, they're eating more meat, more meat products, as a result of which we're raising more animals to slaughter to create the consumption of meat. Uh, the in introduction of antibiotics and other things to, excuse me, help this process, is it affecting the ecosystem in the way that it's also contributing uh, to the situation we're living in now, like COVID-19, or will other situations sprout up from this? 
or is this something not to worry about? If you talk to the farmers, uh, they're dead set against it, but they are self-interested. They say not to worry about it. And, yeah. But if you talk to some biologists, they say, boy, we should really be worried about this disruption. Yeah. What's your opinion? Tony, this, Anthony, this is really important. I got to tell you, um, because it touches on very many key topics. Let's just talk about- If you about said you were a Yankee fan, I wouldn't be asking these questions, but since you said you were a Mets fan, I wouldn't be <laughs> Uh, it's all right. It's all right. I, you know, I have to say, I went to Bayside High School and our colors were Mets colors. And the Mets. Mets played right outside of, you know, they were right there. I mean, it's where I went to high school. You, you, you got me at hello, Dean. You, you got me at hello, okay? I'm, I'm sending you the virtual hug, okay? The one that doesn't get you disease. So you know okay, the orange but, blue. I'm an orange and blue girl. Amen. Uh, so what do, you, but, what do you think about that question? Though? Where, where I think, think it's, it's really an important question. And I wish and I hope that more people are sort of get into this conversation. Because, I mean, just, just think about we're in this together. We've got one planet. And the health of that planet is important to all of us. The fires that are happening out west right now, right? You know, we on the East Coast, you know, we're like, you know, woe is they, woe are they because they are dealing with these fires and the smokes. But just think about, you know, on any given day, the jet stream can bring that smoke right here on the East Coast and it has already an impact, you know, the respiratory function of all of us, those who are close as well as those who are distant. Antimicrobial resistance, right? This is where some of public health and medicine's best tools for life-saving against infectious disease. We're running out of medications to help protect us from emerging and re-emerging infections because of overuse of antibiotics. And, you know, we can't say it's their problem because they're over there overusing antibiotics. If there is a problem, in one part of the world, it's everybody's problem. And I think it's really fundamentally important for us to use this moment to educate people that this is everybody's problem. You know, when we were watching COVID, you know, sort of shut down the East Coast cities, you know, cities where we grew up and where we still live, you know, I knew that our friends in the Southeast um, in the rural communities, we're going to get hammered. And the idea was, let's communicate to them now that we're all in this together. It's an infectious disease. It is a contagion. And it's only a matter of time before it hits your communities. So let's work collectively, collaboratively in preventing, preventing the spread of this disease. We have to get to a place where people understand that we are all part of a social contract to each other for our own sustainability and for the sustainability of the planet that we want to live on and we want our children and their children to thrive. It's, um, it's fundamental that we have more people understand that we have a collective responsibility to protect our physical environment and do so in a way that is sustainable and equitable. I have a few more questions. Uh, John has obviously got a ton of questions that are queuing up from our uh, audience participation team, but but I, and I think it's it's well said. But I I, I want to get to the central idea for public health and public safety. And so let's go across the spectrum. 
everybody needs health care in a rich co- country like yours, yes or no? Um, yes, but can I just say it's not just about health care. 80 to 90% of what we call health and wellness happens upstream and outside of the healthcare delivery system. Health and wellness is driven by factors that are not in hospitals. They're driven by equitable educational opportunities, living wage, secure housing, healthy foods, a place to live, learn, work, and play that supports the enable of our mental health and wellness, as well as our physical health. And we have to get society to understand that health doesn't begin in a hospital. It begins long before that, and it's intergenerational. Yeah, and it's obviously, you know, know, the way we eat and and drink, obviously, and smoke uh, has a big impact on this stuff. uh, and, And so we agree. So, but you are saying, we do need a healthcare system that provides coverage for all of us. I think we would we would agree on that, but I yeah. want to hear from you. Yes. Uh, and then the secondary thing, I guess, what I, I I have for you is is related to what your statement is about the prevention of poor health, and that is uh, creating a platform of equal opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you obviously got. Uh, raised in a middle class neighborhood or lower middle class neighborhood like I did, but you you know you had some good teaching maybe some great parents a combination of different things and lo and behold you're now where you are. How do we try to create that platform of opportunity for people uh, that were similarly situated? And it seems like it's tougher today, Dean, uh, based on my observation and my you know my travels around the United States. It's tougher today. How do, how do what, what do we have to do? I think um, having a conversation like this is key. I think we have to communicate that building these platforms, sustaining these platforms that enable the thriving of populations is good for business. Um, I think it's important to recognize that having a public safety net is not charity. It is essential. It is the bedrock for doing good business because having Having the public health values of health promotion and prevention of diseases built into your business plan ensures that you've got a healthy and thriving workforce that is present at work, right? And it ensures that the consumers have the security and the enthusiasm about engaging in civil society and in commerce. And we need to have that virtuous cycle of health, wellness, and the investment in sustaining that health and wellness to keep the workforce, the human capacity, both on the production side, as well as the commerce side going. Public health is fundamental, is fundamental to our economic as well as uh, national security. So the idea here is to um, point out whenever possible and to ever everybody the returns on investment for securing, supporting, and enabling populations to develop healthfully across the life course is good for business, it's good for society, and one should not have to be put in a position to choose wealth over health. They are inextricably intertwined in in ways that we have to appreciate and support. Well, I mean, it, it, it's very well said, and I think one of the big issues, uh, and something happened, I, we can talk about this, but 
probably need some sociolo- sociological help as well, but we've we started to care more about ourselves and less about each other, and a result of which now, you know, we're moving away from each other and we're sort of uh, stockading each other. Uh, but you can't do that because you don't want to be, like I said, living in that McMansion while your fellow neighbor is suffering. We have to figure out how to, uh, uh, and again, you know, my capitalist friends, I'm obviously a capitalist. My capitalist friends don't get it if they don't start acting now through the C-suite, through the corporations, it's going to be mandated uh, upon them by the government. And that's going to have a, that's going to create a misallocation of resources as opposed to having a private public partnership to get it done, uh, which would probably be more efficient and more, more, more offer greater economic utility to everybody. So, uh, well, Dean, this has been terrific. I really appreciate the opportunity for you to speak with us. We've got a ton more questions, uh, but we always, at this point in our conversation, we flip it over to the audience. And so I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy, who's trying to outshine us with that stupid bookcase of his, but that's okay. I'm in the Beverly Hills Hotel. So I just want everybody to know when this sawcast is over, I'm going out to the cabana by the pool. So it won't necessarily be on Room Raider, but I'm going to have a better I'm going to have a better Room Raider than both of you guys in about an hour. I just want everybody to know that. Go ahead, John. I can't argue with that. And hopefully the uh, the fumes from those fires and things aren't aren't filtering down to the Beverly Hills Hotel, Anthony. And, Pretty good uh, air you, quality today. You pray for that. your good health. So, um, Dean, I want you to talk about. I understand there is a course that that you have launched for C-suite executives to educate people in business about what they can do to keep their employees and their customers healthy and contribute to a lot of the you know, public health issues that you've spoken about on this call. Could you tell us more about that course, why you launched it and why it's so important today that we get business leaders more educated about these topics? Sure, John, thanks for that. Um, you know, the course came about through a number of conversations I was having with the CEOs from a number of companies across different sectors. And this, you know, this these conversations started around, you know, we've got um, an, a, a novel virus that is threatening uh, the globe. And I've got, uh, you know, workers and I've got consumers who have questions. And the questions are around how do we respond during a time of crisis in a way that is ensuring public safety. And so these conversations, you know, the pattern was how do we bring public health? How do we bring risk management and risk mitigation principles into the business plan going forward? while we manage uh, COVID and after COVID. And so the conversations across multiple sectors with a number of CEOs um, led us to creating a course. And the course is really to bring the foundational knowledge of public health, which is prevention, preparedness, and response oriented to begin with, into the modeling and business planning um, um, of across different sectors. So that's what we're doing. Um, um, I think my colleagues gave you a link to the to the launch to the website, but the goal here is to put together academic and private and public partnerships in a way where we share knowledge, actionable knowledge that allows one to address concerns that would um, impact the health and wellness and safety of a workforce, and would address concerns that consumers will have about what safety protocols are put into place and how those protocols are designed to really allow for 
um, a, a safe way to re-engage in commerce. It's been an incredible opportunity to de-silo the, the, the work that we do in the business sector and the academic sector. And it's created an opportunity to um, put public health really into the bedrock of business planning. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that decoupling. You know, I think we've all experienced sort of a coming together of our work life and our home life. And you talked about the important need to create a social safety net and to create environments at home for people so that they can, you know, become more educated about public health so they can reinforce good habits. How do you think the pandemic long-term is going to affect the workplace, the workforce, and how we blend our our personal life and our business life. And again, going back to Anthony's question about solutions for preventive healthcare, what types of measures would you like to see put in place that could solve a lot of those things with a view towards the you know, post-pandemic workplace and workforce? Yeah, well, I think work is gonna be defined differently. What is work is, is now you know, constantly being evaluated. Um, first of all, the health and safety of the workforce is now more front and center than before. If you've noticed, um, you know, when, when do you start to define um, and end the definition of essential workers, right? You know, the pandemic has forced us to realize just how incredibly important uh, our workforce is across uh, all of the different domains. And the fact is the challenge to identify a work a part of the workforce that's not essential is almost impossible, right? Um, people are now seeing how low wage, low income earners are so fundamental to the way our society has to operate. Um, where we work and where we have to work is also being upended. We have all learned that we can use technology to adapt to working remotely and to have some very big benefits where we are adding hours back to our life because we're not commuting as much and where the physical environment's being improved because carbon emissions um, are brought down because we're not zipping across the continents for a half day meeting and zipping back. So we are learning through these natural experiments that we can conduct our business without as much travel and without as much place-based embeddedness as, as um, before pre-COVID. Now, there are going to be some challenges. The mental health burden that is being um, illustrated across all sectors as a result of the uncertainty and the physical threats of this um, pandemic not to mention the economic fallout that so many people are suffering from job loss has brought forward a very high burden of mental health illnesses that we have to take care of. So, you know, as a public health person who connects the dots, I can go on about the many good things that we've learned as a result of COVID around what the workforce can look like and what the workplace can be defined going forward and some of the bad things. Just one other point, the fact that we can now use a telemedicine platform to deliver healthcare should be a very important lesson for those of us who live in communities where the ratio of specialists, medical specialists, to the need are not in a good space or place for healthcare delivery. And we have learned some important lessons about the adoption 
and the reception and how enthusiastically patients receive telemedicine to think about how we can use that platform to better provide high quality primary care at lower costs and at greater levels of accessibility. Yeah, to your point, my brother's a radiologist and, and there's a dearth of qualified radiologists around the country, but they've found ways to use technology. Some people talk about how things like AI could replace certain elements of you know, physical doctors, but really it's a tool to enhance and, and scale quality healthcare. Uh, so it's, it's a really exciting development. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, global cooperation. So we've talked about the United States, how individually we've had a difficult time containing the virus. Some other countries have done better and they've adopted different policies that have allowed them to not maybe fully extinguish the virus, but limit the spread and, and limit the mortality rate. You know, the World Health Organization has come under some criticism for its sort of slow response early on in the pandemic and some of the steps that it took. But you know, without really diving necessarily into the WHO, what are ways globally that we can do a better job of coordinating responses and not just responses, coordinating prevention of the spread of, you know, path, you know, pathological diseases as well as general public health issues? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. You know, I would say um, uh, the World Health Organization, the FDA, the Centers for Disease Control. These are vitally important institutions that um, support our public health and global health agendas. And they've all been challenged for local and global reasons. Um, the, you know, the World Health Organization has a very difficult and complex mandate, and that is to anticipate and to respond to threats to human health globally. And that requires leadership and a commitment of leadership to collaborating and being thoughtful about local and global governance issues. And I have to say that is, as an institution, I'm hopeful that we will get back to a place where the US is appropriately involved and engaged as a global citizen, as a leader in positioning the World Health Organization to be responsible to our needs. You know, it's, it's as I was saying to Anthony earlier, the threats to humanity know no boundaries. And COVID makes that very clear. Antimicrobial resistance, air pollution, um, you know, the issues around climate change, these are threats that are global in scope. And we have to find ways to have public, private, global governance engaged and committed to collaboration, to problem solving. And I think academic leaders like myself and others across the country have to use our voices to promote to populations everywhere that decisions around leadership have to include leadership that is invested in a public health and a global health mission. Because um, we, the, the challenges are enormous, but we do have the talent and the capacity if we choose to work together to address these problems. And it, it can't be an isolated solution. It's got to be where the global good of these solutions are appreciated and there's a commitment uh, to make them a global good. For example, for us to get back to 
uh, a sense of normal post-COVID, we will need for leaders to recognize that safe and efficacious vaccines have to be managed as a global good. That is the quintessential challenge in front of all of us right now. It is a public health and global health challenge. And the CDC, FDA, WHO are all needed to be strong institutions to help us operationalize on that global good. Yeah, it's one of the disheartening things that you see is that some people, let's take polio as an example. We've eradicated basically polo from our soci- polio from our society. But you have people today who say, well, the disease has been eradicated. We don't need to take the, the vaccine anymore. We don't need to vaccinate our children. And you're starting actually to see an uptick in cases of polio because uh, people are, are unwilling to, to get their children vaccinated for personal reasons, but really it's more about the public good. So it's it's difficult in a society like the United States, which values freedom and personal choice to ensure that people make those decisions that are part of the greater good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think it's incumbent on us um, to educate. I don't mean to preach, right? And I don't mean to please judge. do preach. Please do preach. <laughs> but I think it's incumbent of, of us to to share the public health values um, and to illustrate how you know, this issue of um, a social contract that we all have for each other, for our family members, for our communities, for our society, and for the planet, you know, brings us together as a human race that, that we have to find ways to work together and to think that it's not just the individual because we are, I overuse this word, but we're so deeply interconnected, even more so now because of the technology and our ease of travel Right. Well, Dean Williams, we're so thankful for you taking the time to speak with us. I know in the middle of a global pandemic, you're as busy as anybody in the world right now, uh, not just managing all of your academic uh, responsibilities, but also trying to help solve some of these social issues. So we're very grateful. And we want to remind everyone about that course at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. We're going to send a link around to everyone who registered for this talk. uh, And also we're going to send the link on all of our social media outlets as well. Uh, to that course where you can go online and learn more about it. And we're going to try to get Anthony involved in that as well so we can make sure that uh, our SkyBridge staff is uh, not just healthy in the pandemic, but reinforces strong public health principles going forward. Awesome. He's eating a lot lot of junk food, Dean, okay? He's taking advantage of his youth and his metabolism. I just want you to know that, okay? (laughs) I'm, I'm like only eating junk food 16 hours a day. John is eating at 24. I just want everybody to know, okay? I'm down, I'm down to 16 hours a day of junk food, Dean. <laughs> well, listen, I went to your restaurant um, with my, I took my son for a special dinner. At, oh, at great. The, is it Hunt the and fish? fish? Hunt and Fish Club. Love the food. Um, oh, great. I, I had no idea. I would, I would, I, well, that's I, something I gotta let you know. We, we can't open until Broadway opens, unfortunately, but we'll, I know, we'll be I back. Know. But it was one of my most memorable dinners. It was um, mom taking her son out to a fancy dinner, and we had a great time. I wanted to thank okay, you. Okay, well, that. good. All right, well, thank you so much for doing that. And, of course, there's no shortage of desserts at the Haunted Fish Club. But in any event, uh, you were terrific, Dean. I hope we can get you back uh, after the election and talk about the future of the public health and awareness for people in the United States. Thank you so much for people around the world, for that matter. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate the opportunity. All the best. I hope I can get up there and see you at some point. You know, if they let me 
but if they let me back on campus, you know, we'll have to see if they'll let me back on. Oh, you got to come over to the School of Public Health campus. You're welcome anytime. Okay. All right. Because I think they put an electric <laughs> fence around Harvard Law School after I went to work for Trump. I don't know if I get electrocuted <laughs> on the way in, but, you know, I'll come over. I'll come over to the public health school anytime. All right. Uh, all right be well. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye, Thank Tony. You. Anthony. Bye-bye, John. Bye.